This is very much a teaching approach, teaching evening. Uh, and I know, I know you know that, and I'll just tell your expectation at that level. This is sort of seminar style in a way. And um, what I want to encourage you to do is to ask questions. Now, I'm not brilliant at that because I, once I get going, I don't sort of notice unless you wave your hand. But if you wave your hand, I can cope with that, and I'm very happy to stop and answer your questions. Then I'll try and give you time for properly for questions uh, as well probably towards the end, but there are two or three, I mean you can look at the notes, you'll see that there are some big areas that we're going to look at, we won't cover absolutely everything, I do plan to look at tongues interpretation, which comes, these notes were originally used I think for a Brighton seminar, maybe it was uh, one of those settings, uh, and I just, uh, although I've slightly tinkered with what I'm saying this evening, I used the notes there without having to get anybody to retype them, so the order may be slightly different, and I might say to you at this moment we're going to go to page five or six or something, but hopefully they're better than no notes at all. I hope you'll find that, and they're quite um, detailed. Good. We're going to get started. If we haven't still, oh, you've got a few over. Oh, dish them out. Give them out to anybody. How many? We're talking about two, so don't get too excited. Oh, Steve's got some. Let's use them all up. Yeah, Steve, if Steve does that, that'll be great. Oh, Tony would like one. Husbands and wives, you could still be faithful to the principle of having one between two. That'd be helpful. So it's other people, first of all, who are sharing. Thanks. Um, good. If you've got a Bible, we'll have 1 Corinthians 12 and around that area open. We won't be reading masses of it because of time. But uh, we'll refer to... 1 Corinthians 12, probably 13 and 14 too at different times, particularly chapter 14. Um, and I, ho- I hope you'll you know, find this fruitful and good. I'm looking forward to doing it, not only this one, but this little mini-series. I think we see, what we felt, what I felt, and I shared it with Steve, was that there's quite a lot, and the other elders, there's quite a lot of uh, material that I felt I could share in a teaching context uh, here, which... Um, Probably I've used elsewhere, much of it, not all of it. Um, And uh, I felt the resource needs to be used locally as well. This one, I I feel, is a subject we need to grasp, be stirred in our faith about. And it will link with doing prophecy, so I won't say much from prophecy tonight, with Julian Adams in in February, when the whole evening will be about prophecy. And uh, I'm sure Julian Adams being there, we will be practical. We'll be doing some prophesying and prophesied over and goodness knows what. So that'll be fun. Okay, if you've got the Bible open, just to look at the very first verse of 1 Corinthians 12. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. So God actually wants us to know all about the spiritual gifts and to understand them and to enjoy them and to use them. And actually, in verse 7, it says, in the same chapter, Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, I'd just like to highlight something, not too negatively, but highlight a practical bit of teaching straight away. Manifestations of the Spirit, in Bible terms, are gifts of the Spirit. They're the gifts that we're going to look at tonight. I think probably there are two quite major things that have happened in the last 10, maybe more years, 10, 15 years really, that probably have slightly altered uh, perceptions of the things of the Spirit. The two things are the Toronto blessing, so-called, and all that went around with that. And the other is Alpha itself, with its Holy Spirit weekends and the whole way it works. They're, neither of those things are bad, in my 
uh, book. They're very good and there's many positives. But there's a sort of vagueness come in a bit about the Holy Spirit and his gifts. I think the area of baptism in the Spirit has become a bit fuzzy, what it is. And that's not my main subject tonight. And manifestations. So we're, we're used to people uh, maybe shaking or laughing or falling over and dancing and things like that. And we, we loosely call those manifestations of the Spirit. Personally, I would see those as human reactions to the power and presence of God's Spirit in a person. So they're a sort of byproduct when God's doing something in someone's heart or life. Sometimes it's just like a byproduct. It's not something that you should feel weird about. It doesn't happen to you. It's not something you should pray for or seek. And I don't think it is a manifestation of the Spirit in that sense. I think it's a human reaction to what God's doing. I'm not being pedantic. I genuinely think we need to think clearly and sharply. Manifestations of the Spirit are really the gifts of the Spirit. The actual tools doing the job. Now, you might be shaking while you're praying for someone or while you're bringing a prophecy. That's fine. It's nothing to be wrong, wrong about that. But the actual prophecy is what we're looking for, perhaps, as a manifestation of the Spirit. I think also, for some time in our churches and churches like ours, as we've grown, there's been a tendency to neglect this, gift, this, this subject a bit. There's been a tendency, I think, to let um, gifts of the Spirit slide a bit. Um, bigger meetings, large numbers of people, and there's a danger we don't see so much of them. Perhaps in your community group, it's, it's difficult to see gifts of the Spirit. I would hope it isn't, but it, I can imagine it might be. And if I think back to my origins, I was baptised in the Spirit in 1971. Origins, I think I'm talking about in the charismatic movement. Um, and when we started meeting as a house church in the 1970s, really we'd be not much bigger than a cell group, but we were all full of, you know, full of the excitement about the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit were manifest quite a lot. And um, I suppose people like myself or Don Smith would be leading those groups. I then, he led one when it got too big for his house. I led one in my house, Marion's in my house. So we, so we had two groups before we, then we used to meet on Sundays in a, higher, in a, in a scout hall, actually. And um, so on and so forth. But what I'm really going to say is, when we were leading these, they weren't really quite like we've, drifted into thinking in some ways or of community groups as just a little subgroup and you know it sort of jogs along bread and butter hope it's not like that but we can think like that really these were actually very important parts of our church life which I would want them to still be and like to restore them to and actually the exercise of the gifts was quite a key part of it so people did prophesy did pray for the sick we did we actually tried delivering people from demons in our house group. Used to do it in the kitchen sometimes because it got a bit noisy. So, I mean, actually, that's quite a long way from where we are today in community groups. But I'm, it'd be nice to get back towards that. <laughs> but I, I'm just trying to say, I think, uh, over the growth of the churches, over the years, we perhaps have toned down quite a lot. Now, I'm not saying that some of that hasn't been good, but um, I want us to make sure we don't tone it down too much. So this evening we're going to stir it up a bit and say, come on, we mustn't neglect, benignly neglect, the gifts of the Spirit. In biblical terms, spiritual gifts are given, there's three things there in your notes, to equip the church, to enrich the church, and to edify the church. Those are three words that you could find in those verses. Equipping the church suggests that they are getting us ready to do the job we're here to do, which is to reach the nation, to share the gospel. So often spiritual gifts aren't that always that introspective. They're for outward going and reaching out. 
But they're also to enrich the church, which is a reference Paul makes to the Corinthians. And enrich means what it says, really. If you have a lovely, rich fruit cake, it's got lots of fruit in it and beautiful flavours and spices and, and, and almonds and things. And actually the church should be a rich variety of gifts. And it distresses me if we are getting too monochrome. I think we need, as a church, to be colourful in metaphorical sense. We need to be full of different giftings and not frightened of that, not frightened of encouraging one another in our gifts. It enriches the church and it edifies the church. That is, it builds us up and makes us strong. The gifts of the Spirit are to strengthen the church. These things are not natural talents. We're not talking about um, just things that people are quite good at doing. We're talking about supernatural enablings that God gives to his people. They are unmerited. You don't earn them as by being good. They're, they're, they're part of God's grace gifting to us. They are essential equipment for the church to be able to carry out its ministry. I would say that the church can't really be the church if we are not exercising spiritual gifts. Not just one or two, but the whole gamut. We're not going for everything God's got. And you're not really the church properly unless that's happening. So I think we need to be ready to be challenged and stirred about that as well. I am very firmly convinced that the New Testament teaches that the gifts of the Spirit are for the whole age between Jesus going back to heaven and coming back for the church, returning. I haven't time to explore this in great detail, but I am going to give some time to it this evening because I've got time to do that in a teaching evening because I think we need our faith stirred that these things are real for us today because that's still a battleground in many Christians' minds. But just one verse to to, to mention, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. I mean, that's just the throwaway verse there I chucked in. But you could find in many places there's this sense that the spiritual gifts are for the period until Jesus comes back again. And um, I was brought up in a church which would have argued the opposite to that. I was brought up in a very strongly cessationist church. That is that the gifts of the Spirit ceased after the first uh, apostles died out. Now, although that may not be so strongly pushed widely, it's still pretty broadly held in many uh, Christian circles. And I think there's more cessationism, even in a passive sort of way, about than we realise. And it's certainly been widely held historically. And therefore, people struggle. I think, well, actually, if Spurgeon and people like that maybe didn't uh, talk about spiritual gifts, are they right? I mean, it can trouble people. Well, I think the position of saying that the gifts have not ceased at all is a strong position hermeneutically. That is by studying and interpreting scripture. It's not based purely on our experience. It is based on our understanding of the Bible. I think, I would argue, the secessionist position is based on experience and not good hermeneutics. As I say, I was brought up on it and I know fully all the arguments because that's what I held to myself. When I first came across a very anointed person, David Watson, bringing that mission, I think I referred to it briefly here a week or two ago, bringing, uh, in the prayer meeting, um, bringing uh, a wonderful impact on my university with the gospel, but also bringing the charismatic gifts and people prayed for and filled with the Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophesying. And I was brought up that this was either going to be the devil or flesh. And that was quite a problem because 
If it was the devil, it seemed very odd that so many people were getting saved. If it was the flesh, it was far more successful than anything I'd seen before. So I really did phase me, and I didn't start off immediately agreeing with it. I can remember to my shame, uh, mocking, speaking in tongues. Uh, I was familiar with a goon show, and I thought it sounded like that, and I remember mimicking it, which I'm not proud of now. Uh, I can remember arguing with people who were filled with the Spirit, saying, well, you know, you don't, all the stuff that people say, you don't need that, and all the rest of it but ultimately had to eat humble pie. I personally came through, but I got prayed for, and nothing happened. But I don't think it would have done. I was standing there with my mouth shut, determined to say, let God zap me then. You know, and he didn't, not in that way. And also, I was a bit like, well, let's see what this is about. And then I went from that to, well, I'm maybe, why aren't I being filled with the Spirit? What's wrong with me? Maybe God doesn't love me. You know, all the sort of spiral of things. And in the end, I felt God... I suppose I understood it to be God saying to me, don't keep looking about the gifts, just look to me. So I spent some weeks and months more in the New Testament than I'd ever been before. I was only quite young and I read the Bible all my life, but never that thoroughly. And I really dug into it and I really just went through the New Testament, underlined everywhere where the Holy Spirit was mentioned, which is actually quite a lot of places. I found it took me quite a while. And in that process of just having quiet times, really, on my own, studying the Bible, there came a day when um, I was reading, actually it wasn't the Holy Spirit, I was reading somewhere, at one, Matthew I think, about Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane. And um, I just suddenly realised Jesus really went through awful agonies, not just physically, but spiritually, and he did it for me. I mean, you think, well, that's obvious. Well, it had been obvious in my head, but it suddenly sunk into my heart in a more powerful, profound way than ever before. And so on my own in my room at university, I just, and this was months after this mission I've told you about, months after all the controversy, and I just uh, felt I was thanking Jesus. I was beginning to weep, which I'd never really done before, actually, when when I thought about what Jesus had done. I've been remarkably unemotional over the years. And it just, the best way I could describe it, a thought entered my mind. Now would be a good time to pray in tongues. That's the best way I could describe it to you. It was like, you know, I didn't know what to say. I kept saying thank you, which seemed a bit repetitive. Uh, I just thanked Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for me. You know, and I was quite emotional on my own. And, and it just like it, it was prompting, just said, now would be a good time to speak in tongues. Now, what I had to do was start doing it. I had to do it. I don't, I didn't, it wasn't a problem. It didn't feel like the devil was particularly active as I was so absorbed with the cross. It almost didn't seem to matter if it was the flesh. Suddenly that seemed like an academic, stupid argument. Because, you know, I didn't understand that now, but I do now as a father and a grandfather. If you've got a little child comes to you and they express their love with some scribble or something, a little present, you know, you get little cards from them with a scribble all over it, you, you know, you, you, it's, you love what they're giving you. You don't sort of say, oh, don't give me one of those till you can draw properly. Come back later, five years' time. You know, you don't do that, do you? And I just thought, well, even if it's the flesh, God knows I'm just trying to tell him I love him. Does it really matter? You know, oh, is this the flesh or not? You suddenly think it's a bit Greek, perhaps. It's me. It's not the flesh. It's me, John Grove, saying, God, I love you. And uh, so I started speaking, and the whole thing just flowed. And I went, spoke on in tongues for, goodness knows how long, half an hour or so, probably much longer than I've often done since. But it was just a whole flow of the Spirit. And it was on my own, so I've all, let's just say, this isn't in all how I intended to start, but let's just say to many of you, because some of you do still struggle with this, if you've gone through, like I had, a whole mental sort of turmoil over it, 
sometimes it's going to be on your own, just doing business with God, and you've just got to be sensitive to a little prompt of the Spirit, because in the end, you still have to open your mouth and do it. You still have to get your feet off the bottom like in a swimming pool and go. And for me, that was what happened. And then I, you know, after this breakthrough in my own life, I had to go around to all the people I'd been quite rude to, actually, and say, I'm sorry, I've, I've got all filled with the Spirit now. Can I join your prayer meeting? And, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. Actually, it was quite a, a controversial year following that. There was all sorts of stuff going on, because uh, I wasn't the only one battling with it. <laughs> it was a, I was president of the Christian Union. It was a horrible year. In many ways, it was glorious. It was horrible, too. But anyway, as long as it's gone, long as it's gone. But so, so, you know, God does things in you like that. I, I hope that helps. I just felt to share it. So I came a long way from a cessationist position to a total convinced that God is doing these things today. And, you know, when you look at the arguments, I'd love to take the time to do it, which would mean more than one meeting on this. When you look at the arguments about secessionism, that it's all ceased, they are very poor. They're very poor hermeneutically. One of them is related to 1 Corinthians 13, with the argument that when that which is perfect is come, these things won't be needed. It's a terribly weak argument. The argument is that which is perfect is often the Bible. That's what conservative evangelicals. When the word of God was perfected, they didn't need the gifts of the Spirit. That's one of the major arguments. But it's nonsense. There's no way that's what Paul could have meant when he wrote it to the Corinthians. And one of the first rules of good hermeneutics is what did it mean for them? And the guide of what, what it meant for them is a guide on what, how we interpret that's the first horizon, and that affects how we interpret. We can't say, oh, well, that wouldn't have meant that to them, but that's really what it means, the Bible. You can't do that. But when you actually read it, what it's very strongly indicating is that that which is perfect is what you logically would think it was, the new age, when Jesus comes back. And, and actually, of course, it mixes together what we might call more miraculous gifts and less miraculous, if you like, uh, Knowledge is mentioned as well as tongues. This is all the second half of 1 Corinthians 13. And, you know, one day the imperfect will go and sure, we'll see him face to face. It's, it's clear that it's the argument I'm making, that gifts are needed in the interim until Jesus comes back. That's when they, go, they don't need them anymore, when we see him face to face. And so, actually, the arguments uh, against the tongues, the gifts of the Spirit, all of the gifts of the Spirit today, healing and miracles, are usually, frankly, they're based in experience. We aren't experiencing them, so they mustn't be for today. And that's not a good argument. I'm just briefly going to give you a few counter-arguments because I think we need to, to, know, to know them so that we are strong in ourselves. Let me briefly, I'm looking at my notes, but I'll, I will do it, but let's do it quite briefly. One of the arguments is that the gifts of the Spirit were all for the apostles in the first uh, phase of church history and when they had died out, when they completed their task, you didn't need them anymore and when you had the Bible, you didn't need them anymore. Now, the New Testament tells us that the purpose of spiritual gifts, miracles, signs and wonders is broadly to authenticate, certainly, the character and the claims of Jesus. Yeah, that's there. Jesus did show who he was, by doing these things. But that's not the only thing Jesus showed, let alone the apostles. They're often linked, these things are often linked to the message of the kingdom. Not to the person of Jesus so much, as to the message Jesus was preaching, authenticating the message. And that certainly is how it's picked up 
by the apostles. So to give you just one verse, Acts 14 and verse 3, it says this. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So miracles, signs, wonders, gifts of the Spirit are authenticating the message. They're not really authenticating individuals. If their prime purpose was to authenticate the apostles who wrote the New Testament, which is one of the cessationist arguments, it's rather confusing because we find Barnabas, Stephen, Philip, Ananias and several others performing quite powerful miracles, yet they didn't not only not write the New Testament, they weren't recognised as frontline apostles. So they're doing as much as others, so that's a bit confusing. And also, there are instructions in the New Testament for ordinary believers. One of them, the largest sections, is the one we're looking at. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Massive instructions for ordinary believers, which suggests to me that these are not just about authenticating the 12 apostles and those who wrote the Bible. And there is a significant number of writings in the New Testament done by people where we have no record of them doing miracles and signs and wonders. None of the writers in the New Testament appeal to miracles to support their authority to write the Bible. It's a slightly spurious argument. These gifts are used as part of the kingdom message, the gospel that is brought. Some people say that the power gifts were needed by the apostles as a sort of boost launch for the church. Uh, But that, of course, is pure speculation. And frankly, logically, I would say to you, if those who met the risen Jesus and lived with him and knew him needed the gifts of the Spirit, I think us lot need them as well. You know, if that's the argument, you know, I think it's a a totally made-up argument, to be honest, but I think it's a weak one. I think if they needed them, so do we. Then you could get the argument that placed that the Gospels and the book of Acts and the four Gospels can't be used for doctrine, which is a bit of a pity because they're 60% of the New Testament. And 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 tells us that all Scripture is profitable for teaching or doctrine. And of course, the people who make that argument are often very selective. So they're quite happy to get other doctrines out of Acts, but not this one of the gifts of the Spirit. But actually, Acts is a very important book. It's the only divinely inspired book of church history and so it's our best source of seeing what I believe normal church life is supposed to be like in any age, in any context, any culture. Now it will vary enormously in its cultural manifestations. It does to some extent even in Acts. But basically the quality of life there is what we should be seeing all the way through. Now another feature you pick up in Acts is that when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said these things, the pouring out of the Spirit, prophecy, signs and wonders, were signs of the last days. You get that in Acts 2, 16 to 18. Now, last days are only one lot. You don't get last the days and lastest of the last days. That You only have one sort of last days, the last days. And I believe that the Bible is very simply teaching that the age we have entered, which is the age of the Spirit, the church age, the age of grace, new covenant, you could call it all of those things, is an age that is the final one in church history, and it will end when Jesus comes back. And in this age, the gifts of the Spirit are operating right through to the end. 
I think there's a very, very strong case, biblical case, to make for the fact that all the gifts of the Spirit operate all through what we'll call the church age, the last days, until Jesus comes back. This same Jesus, they were told, who goes up, you'll see him like manna return. And that's the simple game plan. And so, actually, the gifts of the Spirit are for today, including miracles, signs and wonders, healings, prophecies, and, less obviously, miraculous signs, uh, gifts as well. Actually, when you get into the Bible and think and study the Bible, you find this. People expect God to work miraculously. In the Bible, they expect stuff to happen, even in the Old Testament, let alone in the New Testament. And they get quite agitated when things aren't happening. So, for example, Paul finds that God does not deliver him from his thorn. Now, that's often used as an argument for a a non-healing, although we don't even know it was a sickness. But actually, what you need to notice there is Paul was expecting some intervention from heaven. And when he didn't get relieved of his thorn, he needed an explanation because he's expecting stuff to happen. And he got an explanation from God. But what I'm trying to get, actually get to you is when we don't see... This, in the West, probably, over the last few centuries, there's been this rational approach which has totally sort of ironed out all this supernatural gifts and everything else and rationalised it and linked it to our experience, all the stuff I'm briefly talking about. But when you get to the Bible, when things stop happening, people ask questions of God. They don't say things like, well, God must be not doing that anymore. Which is really what conservative evangelicalism said for centuries here. You know, well, God just doesn't do that anymore because we don't see it happen. But that's not the Bible's approach. The Bible's approach is, God, what's going on? Even in the Old Testament, let me give you one verse. Psalm 74, two verses to be accurate. Psalm 74, just look at the Old Testament approach when things aren't happening like prophecies and miracles. Even in the Old Testament, Psalm 74 is about that. It starts with one verse which says, Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? But look at verses 9 and 10. We are given no miraculous signs. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? That is a better approach when there's no signs and wonders. The complacency and the arrogance to say, which the church, particularly in the Western world, has largely said is, we don't need these things, and if they're not happening, that's fine, God stopped doing them. That is not biblical. The biblical approach is here. Why are we having no signs? Why are there no prophets left? This is your judgment. God, what's happening? Our enemies are mocking us, and our enemies do mock us. When we try and take them on purely intellectually, they will mock us. But when we see words of knowledge, when we see healings, when we see signs, we break through that mockery, don't we? Now, we do do apologetics. I like apologetics very much. I've been telling you about books I've been reading over Christmas. But actually, we need the, the impact of the Spirit's gifts. We need to be, and I know we are going increasingly, out there praying for the sick. Bringing words of knowledge, bringing prophecies, bringing them here and out there. Our, our evangelism needs to have it all around because that's how God does it. That's how it happened in Acts and that's how it happens today. Often the breakthroughs were related to some of these things happening when you read it in Acts. So actually the right response to very little happening is to say, Oh God, have mercy on us. Please restore these things. 
Now, in the last few decades, and you have the privilege of living now and not 50 years ago, God's got hold of that with a lot of the church. And suddenly people have got back to say, oh, God, restore these gifts. Great. We need them to do the job you've called us to do. So I hope you have no problem believing that the gifts of the Spirit are all for today. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and all the rest, which we will briefly look at now, because we're going to look, we're not going to spend ages over this, don't worry, it won't be much longer than the notes on most of them. They're just here, a list of the gifts and some brief definitions. And I want to say something about the potential and what there is there. Now, the New Testament lists spiritual gifts in a number of different passages. These aren't exhaustive lists. There is definitely overlap, and they're not precise, I think, as we would be precise. We have a very precise view of life. It's how we are. It's how our culture is. There's not actually wrong. You know, I've cited other things before. We get a bit uppity if we're careful. We say, well, Jesus wasn't three days in the tomb. No, he was... He was part of of three days. He went in Friday evening and he was out again Sunday morning. You know, we think three days is three lots of 24 hours. No, it's not. They don't think like that and uh, it's not uh, for them. And it's the same here. I think we can be over fidgety about this. These gifts will overlap and they'll affect uh, and they'll be broader than we sometimes make them. I'll try and explain that, but I think we can see some definition in them all the same. And I think we need to think about the word miracle and supernatural. All the gifts are supernatural. They are not just about natural abilities. They're about empowering of the Holy Spirit in your life. But not perhaps all would be described as miracles. Miracles are something that are abnormal, that actually clearly seem to go beyond the laws of nature. So... uh, Some gifts are inevitably, almost by definition in that area, signs, wonders, healings, and some others, even tongues, I think, are moving into that area. But there are other gifts, helps, mercies, uh, pastoring, teaching, that sort of overlap a bit with what we might say normal practices. But we're actually looking for supernatural enabling. And supernatural enabling means that the gifts will, even those ordinary ones, will sometimes have miraculous dimensions, extraordinary abilities that go beyond the ordinary. And another thing you notice is that most of the things that are gifts of the Spirit are things that we might all do anyway, up to a point. I hope we all evangelise. I hope we all, any of us can prophesy. I, I hope most of us would feel free to, to sort of bring a word of knowledge or, 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 or to pray for a sick person and see them healed. So in the end, there is a sort of multiplicity of gifts that we all dabble in, if I can use that word, but then God will give special anointings to each one of you in certain areas. And you'll all have giftings that will, that will be a more of an emphasis in your life and a more of a, a characteristic of your ministry. And I would also emphasise, and I've come out several times this evening, that the Bible clearly teaches that every one of us have got spiritual gifts. Not just natural gifts, but spiritual gifts. And every one of us sitting here this evening, if we're a believer, should expect to have clarity in our minds, even as I I hope I help you this evening, to think, God's gifted me in things and I must go for and pursue how he's helped me and gifted me. I must learn to to work on it. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm not pausing for long, but just if anybody had a a question, I I did say I'd give space. I suddenly thought I've been going at quite a pace. 
Okay, we're going to keep going. We're going to look at, uh, just briefly, ones that are mentioned in the Bible. Now, here's three mentioned in 1 Peter 4, 9 to 11. Hospitality, teaching and serving are all listed as spiritual gifts. Hospitality, now just as I say this, just see if it's something that applies to you. Hospitality is a God-given ability to provide an open home and a warm welcome to those who need comfort, food, lodging, a place to be at home. Now, we all should be hospitable. This is like gifts are. But there are some people who are really gifted to do this. They love doing it. They do it for the glory of God. And it is a fruitful ministry. People seem to love coming to their home, feel at home there, love coming around for a, a cup of tea. It's, a, it's something that just works. Gifts, I think, are always fruitful. And by the way, you will enjoy using your gifts. If God's gifted you supernaturally to do something, you will not hate doing it. That is just a false idea. Well, it must be God, I hate doing it. That's the other way around. God made us, and he knows that we do things we like doing better than things we don't like doing. So you, I enjoy what I'm doing this evening. And the stuff you do that is in God, it might make you tired or you might have to work at it, but you'll basically enjoy it. So hospitality, though we all should be hospitable, for you, you'll just love it. And it'll be something, and you need to develop that. You need to offer your home. You need to even tell us, say, I'd love to put people up. I just get such a, a thrill out of just being friendly and talking to people. It's, there's a gift in the body of Christ of hospitality. There's a gift of teaching, the God-given ability to communicate information from the Bible in such a way that people see it and learn out of it. And it provokes change in them. It has fruit in that sense. I think this is a very widely given gift because I think there's all sorts of teaching. I think you can teach one-to-one. We see uh, that in the Bible. Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos. I think there are groups, small groups, like Jesus and his disciples are going from house to house. I think there might be certain subgroups, like older women teaching younger women. And then there are the larger groups, the crowds. You see all of that in the Bible. And in fact, the Bible talks about us instructing one another, one-to-one teaching and discipleship. I think probably we call some of that counselling. But it's basically instructing another individual in the ways of God and applying it to their lives. I would hope in a healthy church there are scores of you with that gift. Now, you're not all going to stand up here, but you may well be the right person to help us with uh, Alpha, Foundations, maybe to, to, do, to take people through freedom in Christ or to just do some basic new Christian instruction or, or we're going to see it happening tomorrow, aren't we? The higher call. You know, just women being instructed and developed in their lives, men the same, young people, old people. And, and I just want us to be more creative in our thinking about it. I want, I want us to be, me, me and the leaders. But, you know, basically there's a lot of different types of teaching and it needs supernatural gifting. It's not just something anybody does. But you love doing it and it's fruitful. Serving, that seems very general. We all should serve. Of course we all should serve. But there's a God-given ability to identify needs in the church, tasks that need doing, and to make yourself or the resources available to meet that need. I think serving probably is more about accomplishing tasks because there's another gift of mercy and helps. We'll look at those later, which might be a little more helping people. I think there's some people who just are very good at making things happen, making the, the practical things happen. They just see what needs to be done and they do it. Now, we should all serve, like all the other gifts, 
There's a sort of generality, but there is a special gifting of service. And some people really have got that. And we need to find those sort of people. Probably they will end up, if they're good, being the sort of people in charge of an area of service. Because they just see what needs doing. They know well how to accomplish it. In Romans 12, we get these other gifts mentioned. Prophecy, exhortation, giving, leadership and mercy. So these are are separate. Now, prophecy we're not going to say much about tonight because we've got a whole evening looking at that. But that is a God-given ability to communicate a now message from God to his people. Something that applies right now. It can be one-to-one, it can be small group, it can be to hundreds or thousands. It's a word from God, it's not the word of God. So it can err, can make mistakes, and it needs to be judged and subjected to probably the judgment of other prophets and the word of God itself. But its, its main goal, we're told this in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 13. Is it 13 or 3? Um, yeah, 1 Corinthians 14. I'm looking at Romans 14. That's not very helpful. Um, 1 Corinthians 14. It's verse 3. Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. So actually, prophecy should have this sort of impact on people. It strengthens them, encourages them. That doesn't always mean it pats them on the head. It stirs them or it just brings comfort. Sometimes it will have a predictable angle, but that's quite rare. Exhortation. That's the ability to minister words of comfort and consolation. It's sort of a subsection, I think, of prophecy in many ways. But it's the ability also to admonish people and challenge them. I'm going to be careful. I can't do this tonight. But I can think of people in this room who've got some of these gifts. And I think some people are particularly able to bring a challenge and an exhortation to someone. That means that people receive it. They respond to it. They don't just get offended. They may not find it comfortable. But there's an ability to bring that sort of challenge to people and it's a gift it's not all of us can do it there's a gift of giving some people are uh, particularly blessed by God with resources and sort of gifted to contribute materially to the church they just love doing it they do it liberally cheerfully and God keeps giving them more to do it we're all meant to give we all do give we all should do it cheerfully it's going to be true but there are some people really good at giving really gifted at giving to the church. And they need to go with that. Leadership, now that applies at a number of different levels. And that's the ability to set goals in accordance with God's purpose and to communicate those goals to the people being led in a way that motivates them and gets them working together to achieve those goals for the glory of God. Also, usually I think this leadership gifting involves the ability to resolve disputes and create a unity of purpose. It will happen with the church, but it also happens in subsections of the church. We need to pray for people who are just good leaders, who can make the worship happen, who can get stuff happening, get us together achieving things in an area of church life. Youth could be other things. Mercy. This is mentioned as a spiritual gift in the Bible. And it seems to be the God-given ability to move very powerfully in compassion to genuinely be able to overcome any sort of natural reticence or, or maybe even offence that, you know, you've got an extremely needy situation, maybe it's emotionally needy person, physically needy, uh, and you just have so much of a compassion that you're not put off. You press through the barriers and bring hope and healing to them. 
And I think we need people like that. There are people gifted like that in the church, able to translate that compassion into cheerful, practical deeds that reflect Christ's love, that bring real change and hope to a suffering person. It's probably less public in some ways, but it's a real gifting of God. Now, if you go on next to the next bit of the list, in 1 Corinthians, we get the mention of celibacy as a gift. It's unusual, isn't it? But I think it's an important one to mention. It's the God-given ability to remain single and celibate and to be content and at peace about it. To not suffer unduly in terms of anguish or sexual temptation. And it won't stand alone as a gift. It didn't with the Apostle Paul. There was a purpose to it. In his case, it was the missionary call on his life, which was so disruptive to any sort of family life. And I think if you feel God's called you to a life of singleness and celibacy, and there will be people called to that, you've got to say, God, what's the purpose of that? What am I free to do that I wouldn't otherwise be free to do? It's got to have a context. It does have a context. It won't be a standalone gift. Many of these aren't. There'll be a gift mix And it might be a call to service in some area, both in this country or abroad. It could be numerous things. But if you are terrified that you might have this gift, don't worry. I don't think God will give it to you unless you're at peace about it. When I was younger, before I got married, I'd be frightened that God might give me this gift, so I prayed he wouldn't. But, I mean, if you're in that sort of neurotic state, don't worry about it. It's going to be something like all the gifts, you'll, you'll feel at peace about it if it's a gift of God. It won't be something that causes you great anguish. There seems to be one of poverty or voluntary poverty mentioned in passing in Corinthians, which is perhaps the ability to give away all your possessions with great grace and freedom and probably will again be linked to other gifts. It might be for uh, service in a particularly sacrificial way or something. But we don't all give all our, all our goods away, but some people have an anointing, a gifting to do that. The same might well be true of martyrdom, which again seems to be a gift. That is that some people are able to, with great grace and cheerfulness, face death for Christ. And there's an anointing. Maybe if you're faced with martyrdom, there'll be a gifting for it. That's why another thing it's not good to do is to sit around speculating what would happen if... Have you ever done that? I've been in many a debate with that. What would happen, this is old-fashioned because this isn't relevant now, what would happen if we got taken over by the Russians and someone came through the door and said, if you don't deny Jesus, I'll kill you. Would you deny Jesus, Steve? You see, did you ever have debates like that? No, yeah, we did. And people are anguished about, oh, I don't know if I would, oh, do I even love him? Look, if that happens, you have grace for it. Honestly, you, you know, if God calls you to that, Like Stephen, there'll be a gifting almost. I think it is a biblical gifting. And you won't have it till you need it. (laughs) So it's not about going around moaning and making a martyr yourself. Right. Let's move on to one or two that we might be more likely to see. I'm not going to go straight to apostles. I want to to look at the uh, tongues one, actually, because that's at the top of the page three. But I'd like you to look at page four. Because it's a little bit out of kilter as I said but I want to talk a little more about tongues and I've already given you a bit of a taster on that and I want to talk a bit about interpretation of tongues too while we're, we're on it so just here in the notes and looking at my own introduction 1 Corinthians 14 is an unusual chapter in the New Testament 
It gives the most practical and detailed insights we have into early church meetings, gatherings, and very comprehensive teaching on tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. Very detailed teaching, actually. Whenever you study a passage, you need to be mindful of the context and its overall setting. The letter to Corinthians was written to a lively, wild church in a cosmopolitan pagan city. The people who made up the church came from all sorts of backgrounds, cults, and very sinful lifestyles. You can read all that in the book itself. In Jesus Christ, these people were wonderfully saved, cleansed, from, brought out from the grip of Satan, and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a truly charismatic church. It lacked no spiritual gift. However, the people were far from sanctified. There was all sorts of signs of the flesh and sin in the church. And the letters provoked by that state of things, really. And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it because of their chaos. It's not a a book of doctrine on the gifts of the Spirit. It's primarily written to address the things that they're doing wrong, which is not speaking in tongues, it's the way they're behaving. The precise issues that Paul is concerned about here are disorder, insensitivity to others, and a bad witness to unbelievers. His main concern is not, for example, theological teaching on tongues, prophecy, or women's role. Because often we try and get those things out of it. Now, you can learn some things, but actually that's not what he's really... He's really teaching on the mess they're in. But as he does that, we learn things which are very helpful about these gifts of the Spirit, particularly tongues and interpretation. So let's give this a few moments now. I forgot to mention the gift of faith, by the way, in my list, because there's a gift of faith which seems to be a special anointing to really believe God for big things, which you can encourage others and lead, stir their faith as well. There's so much. But anyway, let's stick with tongues. Just look at my notes. Now, I believe that there is a private and a public gift of tongues. I think you don't need to be a genius to work that out from the scriptures. They have two contexts which come through in our, uh, in our Bibles. Um, and of course, 1 Corinthians 14 is largely about the public use of tongues. I think if we have 1 Corinthians 14 open, if you look at verse 5, for example, of 1 Corinthians 14, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will it be unless I bring a revelation, knowledge, prophecy, word of instruction? And then later on, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than you all. I can't quite see that quickly. 18, thank you. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all, but in the church I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others. Now, I don't think Paul is boasting about his linguistic abilities in verse 18. I speak more languages than all you lot. No, no, he is talking about a supernatural gift. There is a supernatural gift of tongues, which is a lot about it in this chapter. In it, you speak mysteries to God, and your mind is unfruitful. You don't understand what you're saying. Now, Paul is saying, I speak in tongues more than you all. So he does loads of that, but when he's in the church, he doesn't do it much. That's the common sense of what he's saying. He'd rather speak intelligible words. That doesn't downgrade completely the public use of tongues at all, but it puts it in proportion. There is a private use of tongues, which I think Paul advocates. 
Speaking mysteries to God, I think you can bring other scriptures in. It's to do with intercession. When you don't know how to pray as you should, I think that's what Romans 8 is about. Groanings you can't utter, praying in tongues, worshipping in tongues, being edified in your spirit as you pray in tongues. And Paul says, I do that a lot. By implication, that's what he's saying. But in the church, which is his main concern at Corinth, you need to get stuff in order because you lot are a right mess. That's what he's saying. And then he gives all sorts of instructions to them. But before we even rush into that, just let's remember, because some of you will still be, I'm sure, struggling with tongues. I know people do. The fact of the matter is, Scripture is very clear. It's here in verse 2, for example, of chapter 14. Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. And then later on in verse... 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So there's a fact that when you speak in tongues, you don't understand what you're saying. That's it. And we are big on our minds, aren't we? We are big, big, big in our culture. And you've got to accept that tongues is not about the mind, it's about the spirit. I think it's quite a basic gift because it teaches you to move a bit more in the spirit. It edifies your spirit. And you begin to get a little more sensitised in your spirit. And it teaches you to not just analyse everything, but flow with the spirit. I think it's a vital gift. I think by implication, and it is only implication, there is no good reason why God wouldn't give it to you. If Paul would write, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but he's thinking context of public, I'd rather you prophesy. But if he's saying that, and then he says, I speak in tongues more than you all, he's clearly bigging up, if I can use that modern saying, tongues individually. And I suggest to you that if you ask Jesus to give you the gift of tongues, I can't see why he wouldn't. So I encourage you, fresh faith. If you're someone who's never spoken in tongues, ask God. Remember my little story at the beginning. Maybe you've gone through too many uh, mental gymnastics for it to be easy for you. You could ask someone to pray for you and then just try and be a little more relaxed about it and just let the Holy Spirit prompt you in a setting. It might be in a public worship, might be in private time when you're... Maybe you're worshipping, maybe you're interceding and you really are in earnest and you've got something that's very big in your heart and you really don't know what to pray next. And it's like, I don't know what to pray. Holy Spirit, help me. And you, you know, pray in tongues. Because that is a very precious use of the gift. I think the devil doesn't like us using the gift of tongues. It's almost like a direct line to God in a unique way. We speak mysteries in our spirit to the God, the Holy Spirit's in there, and the devil can't even interrupt us by fiddling with our minds like he so often does. And I, I would encourage you to use the gift of tongues. If you've got it, if you haven't got it, I encourage you to ask God for it. I have a real gut feeling that he's unlikely to say no if your whole intention is to serve him better and to be edified. It's just a wild sort of curiosity, mild curiosity. Perhaps that's a different matter. But, you know, if you say, God, I'd love to have this gift, I can't see why God wouldn't give it to you. So I can't give you fresh stir to ask him again. It's a good learning gift, as I said. Public tongues is more limited in its use. And indeed, it must have an interpretation. The Bible is very clear about that. 
and it encourages us to pray for the interpretation. Now let's look at my uh, notes again. I think over the page, is it six now? Uh, No, five, I beg your pardon, five, yep. I just want to say a little bit about interpretation of tongues because I think that's very important as well. Tongues are clearly speaking mysteries to God. We saw that in verse 2. So interpretation is likely to be speaking out towards God, mysteries to God. If you look at verse 16 and 17, I think that adds to the evidence for that. When he's talking about tongues, he says, if you are praising God with your spirit, and I think in context that is clearly tongues. Look, verse 14. If I pray in my, a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind's unfruitful. Then in verse 16, if you're praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. So the implication is that tongues is somewhere, you're doing saying something to God. You're praising him, you're giving thanks to him, maybe you're declaring his mighty works, which is actually what they did on the day of Pentecost. Although they were understandable languages, they were declaring the glories of God. And people said, we all hear them declaring the glorious things of God in our own language. So tongues, it seems, tend to be Godward. That's pretty logical, actually. That's pretty clear from those verses and from verse 2. And so what an interpretation should do is allow others to go, yes, amen, be edified. Tongues are edifying your spirit. Now we're being informed and edified as well. And it's expanding our view of God. It's expanding our faith. And we go, amen, and agree. Now the word interpret doesn't mean translate. That's not what it means. So it means more to explain or express clearly, articulate in some way. It's the same word Jesus used, was used about Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he interpreted the scriptures concerning himself. When Jesus got the Old Testament and said, this is all about me, <laughs> and interpreted. So it's not translation. Interpreting tongues is giving a sense of what it all means. So there is actually quite a lot of choice about the way you bring an interpretation. You're discerning in your spirit what is being said and then you bring it possibly in your own way. So you could interpret by singing, even if they spoke, or by speaking, even if they sing. Maybe you'll interpret with an action. Maybe you'll interpret with a picture. It's, it's, It's helping people to understand what's been said, it's not exactly translation, i.e. the same length and following the grammar of the tongue sort of thing. It's different. It's helping people to understand what we should be saying amen to. Now, as some of you know, often in public tongue situations, you get people interpreting in the form of a prophecy. What's that all about? That gives us A lot of trouble sometimes. We think, oh, does that mean it's not God? What does that mean? Here is the distilled wisdom of John Groves, uh, for what it's worth, over probably in many years of being in meetings and being in the charismatic sort of uh, world, as it were. And I think this is the explanation. I think it's like this. What have people been taught and what is their expectation? See, I'm teaching you tonight 
that when you look at the scriptures, tongues will be Godward. But if you've never heard that, that's not your expectation. If we understand, you're not translating. You're getting a sense in your spirit. And if all you've ever heard is that directed human wood, you can put it in a human wood form. There is a lot of human control, really, with gifts of the Spirit. It says here in 1 Corinthians uh, 14 that the the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophet. You can be quiet. You don't have to speak your prophecy. If two or three others have, you keep quiet. Uh, It says if you've got a tongue and there's no interpreter, don't bring it. In other words, the gifts of the Spirit aren't like automatic writing. They're not like you're taken over by some thing. You choose an awful lot of what you do. That's why people have trouble with the gift of tongues, because you've got to choose to speak it. You have an element of control. God works with you. He doesn't take over from you. And so that's true at another level. So when you're bringing interpretation, you will be affected by what you understand. So I think sometimes people bring something that's relevant to the weight of the tongue, but they're thinking prophecy. But I think there are other complications. And this is just life, folks. (laughs) Sometimes, when a tongue comes, one of the things it does is it releases other gifts. I've noticed that many times. It it just seems to be how it is. So you suddenly get a run of things. And you get two or three contributions. And quite frankly, you're not always sure which one's the interpretation. I'm ashamed to say. As a leader, you try to be. But what happens is you might get a prophecy because the person who's got a prophetic word, which perhaps they've had before the tongue came, and now they're all excited and stirred up, they get in quickly, but the person with the interpretation is a nervous little soul who's waiting. I mean, it's no more profound than that. So you do actually get a bit of a muddle. Now, the Corinthians were in a terrible muddle. That's why we got the whole book. But actually, we don't want to be in a muddle, but it's still possible So we have to teach that, look, when we have a tongue, publicly, we will be looking for a Godward interpretation. You, someone amongst us, will have a sense in their spirit of what it is. It'll be a sense, it'll be a waiting, it's a a weight of, 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 you know, this is the sort of thing God's saying, provoking us to say. If you're bringing that interpretation, can I encourage you to see it as a Godward declaration of praise or of the glories of God or of his magnificence. Just something we go, Amen. Thank you. Now, I think if we all understand that, it will, it will happen. It will still be that others will have other things, that after the tongue interpretation may well come the, the prophecy and the other thing. Yeah, okay. Go on. Go. First thirteen. Yep, thanks. Absolutely, I agree with you. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. Absolutely. That is true. I think the person can. Yeah. That, that, that's very helpful. It isn't always correct. I think you can pray for interpretation. An actual fact, given that we're talking about the gifts tonight... Uh, and where that means a bit more emphasis, where you get gifted in an area, I think in an ideal situation, and I think we do begin to grow into this, there should be several people who have a proven gift in this, 
And we might not always have to have this long, awkward pause because we, if you, actually I think Neil's had a few interpretations and I know Marion has. And as, as someone develops a bit of a gifting of interpreting, they haven't got to always do it, but they can have an expectation that they could well have this. And you have a sense that, you know, we've got people here who are going to be lightly to bring the interpretation. That's an additional point. It's just you, your question sparked that in my mind. But I think, I think that's true as well. In other words, we don't really have to see it as an embarrassing thing where we're going to have a long, awkward pause. Because either the person can be praying or we have people who are a bit proven in that area. But uh, I don't want us to hold back from public tongues and get all funny about it. But I do want us to, to realise what we're doing. You might have a question. I'm making up questions that you might have. What about when we all sing together in tongues? Because sometimes people, oh, what's that? Well, I think that's not about tongues. That's about, about all speaking together. I think sometimes in the Bible, they all prayed with one voice. I don't quite know how they did it, but it looks as though they all raised their voices together in Acts. And certainly we can do that in English or tongues. And of course, we're not particularly looking for interpretation. We're all just praising God together with whatever language we choose, really. Um, and, uh, yeah, I find, find that's unacceptable at all. I think we can all pray together, too, sometimes. But clearly, a public tongue is a clear, loud pronunciation where we're all listening, but then we're expecting an interpretation. There's a funny little bit here, which is always a bit confusing, but I will give it some attention. At the bottom, well, it's not the bottom in yours, but in my page it's the bottom. 1 Corinthians 14, verses about uh, 20 down to, I won't read it all, 20 down to uh, probably all the way to 25, talks about unbelievers in the meeting. And it's a very puzzling little passage. But I think, given the quotation from the Old Testament there in verse 21, that what Paul's saying is that tongues to the unbeliever can be a turn off. It can put them off. And it's almost like it emphasises to them that they are outsiders and they're not in the covenant of God. That seems to be the sort of context. It's a little bit complex, but it looks as though he's saying, using that Old Testament reference and looking at that in context, that, that tongues can be like a confirmation that you're under the judgment of God to an unbeliever. And so instead of drawing them in, you're pushing them away. If you interpret, you can modify that impact. You can soften it, which you actually want to do. Because Paul's talking here about having unbelievers in your presence. A prophecy can really open their hearts up and, and open them to God. But a tongue can make them feel, I don't belong here. I'm not part of this. This is not me. I don't understand it. And therefore, interpretation can help bridge that. That seems to be the sort of context. So he's actually saying, I want you to be careful with your public use of tongues when you've got unbelievers there because it may confirm them in their lostness, almost. That's my understanding. I've, I've looked at that over the years and, of course, looked at commentaries, and that's perhaps one of the most uh, clear for me as to what he's saying there. It's a very complicated few verses. Does anybody want to ask anything else about tongues? Because I have deliberately spent a bit of time on that. Yes? I think they're... Hev- Question from Linda. Are they heavenly or earthly or both? I think they're both. I think only too rarely heard of them being understandable in earthly languages. But I don't know, I bore you if I told you before, we had one incident at Hastings which was thrilling. The guy was Clive Chernick, who has later, interestingly enough, I've only just realised, he's been, in work, he's been in leading a church in Dubai. Because when Clive was with us in Hastings, 
20 plus years ago. He moved on to Darlington and elsewhere since then. Uh, he, he was just in the meeting. We had a normal meeting. We were worshipping. And we were singing in tongues. And he was doing that, presumably. And we had a lady who was clearly a Middle Eastern extraction, who came up to me afterwards and said, who is the man who speaks Farsi? Which man speaks Farsi in your church? I said, I don't know anybody who speaks Farsi. She said, a man over there. I was sitting over there. And then she pointed to Clive. She said, that man. She said he was praising God in Farsi, which was really great for Clive to learn, wasn't it? And, and she said he was, praising, he was speaking in my language, because she came from Iran, I think. And, and so we went over and said that to Clive. He said, well, I don't know, I was just singing in tongues. <laughs> but what was really encouraging was he was praising God. You know, he wasn't ordering the dinner or something. Or <laughs> it wasn't a shopping list or something like that. Anyway, you know, I joke. But it was great. It was really, really encouraging. Um, and, uh, but I've had very few experiences of that. So clearly, even when you don't know it, sometimes it's a, foreign, it's a language, an earthly language. That was what I learned from that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I know which sort I'm doing. Dif- Sorry, are th- there are different types, it was more a statement than a question. There are different types of tongues, intercession and spiritual warfare. I mean, the only way I know the difference, Gay, would be what I'm planning to do. So, I mean, I, I do pray, um, I do pray every day, thankfully, you're pleased to hear that, I'm sure. But I do pray for the church and for my family sometimes in what I would feel almost a warfare form and I just just pray in tongues but I I mean I'm making a choice that I don't know that I'm speaking any differently except I might sound a bit louder or more aggressive (laughs) but um, and then sometimes I'm just worshipping I I would be conscious of my tone being different but I'm not sure of the language being different just go with it yeah oh sorry that question was uh, are there different sorts of tongues for spiritual warfare intercession? And you've just heard my answer. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Sorry. Adam. How, how, do you, how do you grow in the gift? Because like, if, you, if you pray for somebody for healing and they don't get healed, it's pretty obvious you've got some growing to do. Yeah. Uh, if you bring a prophecy and it's not accurate, or it is accurate, you kind of get a sense of, um, you know, I'm growing in this or I'm not. But if you hear somebody bring a tongue and you bring what you think maybe is perhaps an interpretation of it, there's no sense of whether right. it's right or wrong. So how do, you, how do you grow in it? And how does a church get more accurate in their interpretation of tongues? Um, well, it's a good question, Adam, and I guess it was heard through the, through the thing. I, I think the fault lies with us, and I would put myself, us literally, I think we're not very good at... Um, working out how to uh, give healthy weighing and feedback on these things. We're often, if, if truth were known, relieved that we've had an interpretation and move on. And I speak as a full card-carrying, thoroughly committed charismatic. And I, and I think we actually need to learn to, to, maybe the same with prophecies, to be honest, to give some of them a bit more sort of emphasis and encouraging, really, the individual that they've brought something perhaps that's really helpful. And therefore, I presume, because it's certainly true with me, they're encouraged to work at that and to come again with one. You know, Because I'm looking for that with prophecy too. I think, I think we can hone these gifts. We can improve them. I mean, this is all in later notes, which I probably haven't time to get to, because it's quite 
uh, a lot in these notes, but I think gifts are like any other human enterprise. You can actually improve. You can practice. Not perhaps practice, practice, like stand in front of a mirror and practice, but, but you know what I'm saying. You can actually do it and get better at it. So I, I think we maybe don't give enough feedback. Yes. Um, my question is based on um, the Bible. It says that um, you know the gifts of the Spirit are God-given, but also the devil gives uh, some false um, gifts which can destroy a church within or without. So my question is, when somebody, let's say, speaks in tongues or gives a prophecy, which basically is not God-given, but is, dev- uh, is the devil who's trying to sort of uh, divide a church with that, how should the church or how should those people who are able to interpret those tongues or those prophecies uh, help such a person? Because I think it follows on from the yes, question yes, which has sure. just been yeah. given. I, obviously, again, I hope you heard the question. I think, um, well, there will be one, at least one gift I want to give a bit of attention to in a moment, discerning of spirits, <clears throat> because I'm not going to get right through to the end of my list. But I think I'll come and say something about that in a moment. But before I do, I think um, it... A lot does rest on the spiritual leadership of the church in those sort of situations. I have had it, I honestly can't remember it happening here in my last eight years, but I have had experiences where someone has brought a very unpleasant prophecy, quite a divisive or judgmental one. And I've also, more worryingly, come across private one-to-one prophecies that have been very unhelpful, very condemning, uh, and as a leader, you have to make a judgment. I think some of it is discerning spirits, which we'll come to in a moment. But you make a judgment on what's the fruit of it. I mean, you look at the fruit of the prophet's life. What's their life like, as best you know it. That's why I would be very reluctant to have a prophecy to this church or any church from someone I didn't know at all, because I don't know their fruit, their life. I think you, you want to see what's the fruit of the prophecy in the person's life. Is it building faith or fear? Is it edifying is it comforting? Is it strengthening? Or is it adding confusion and condemnation, which some of them have done? And I think you need to be quite strong if you've noticed it having a bad effect, that that's not of God. Um, and you do get, um, and this we need to say more perhaps when we have the prophecy one next week, uh, next month, but you do get predictive prophecies that are unhelpful, like this person's going to be an apostle, or you're going to get married next year, or have a baby next year. And, and so, some of those things have to, a lot of undoing if they don't come true. And uh, I think predictive prophecies need a lot of caution. They need to come from very proven prophets, and they need to be confirmed from several other sources. So if someone is, the only thing they're holding on to is one prophetic word, that I'm going to be an apostle or I'm going to be married next year, I'd say to you, I think you're in danger of being deceived. Because if God is calling you to something like that, he will do it in more than one way. He'll confirm it. The circumstances will also line up. You know, uh, I mean, I, you, you have to deal with it pastorally. But you can, as a leader, bring a balancing word. I think we do have to be bold enough to say, I don't believe that's right. I believe it's wrong. And I think um, it's not easy. You know, it's, it's not easy. You don't always get it right. I think there is discerning of spirits. Were you going to ask a question, Simon? No, sorry. There is discerning of spirits which I, I, I think is relevant to this. Sorry, I've got it in here. I just feel prompted to just say a little on it for a moment. I think God does give an ability to know 
Uh, it's how you handle it, I find, to know if a thing is from a human, a demonic, or a divine origin. And I think as a leader, you sometimes uh, do know. My problem is what I do with I, what I know, <laughs> having the courage or even the wisdom to know what to do with it. Um, but I think we have got to learn, because there is a gifting there that is very important. It's not a gift of criticism. It's a gift of discerning, as the, as the gift says, where this is coming from. And I think if God gives you that gift, you will have with it, I ask for this anyway, and I believe it's how God would do it, you will have some wisdom about what to do with the discernment you've got. It may not be a comfortable thing, but let, let's think of an example. Peter discerned the lying in uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And he knew what God was going to do. I mean, it's not very comfortable. But he's not just, he, he, there's a whole package here. He discerns it and he brings the judgment. And he brings the opportunity briefly for repentance for the wife. You know, if she told the truth, but she confirms the lie and then she's judged as well. And he seems to know what God's doing. So the, 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 the real gifting is to have not only the discernment, but the wisdom to know what to do with that discernment. But we do need that gifting, and I believe that's how God would normally give it. That was, you know, both parts of it. And we need it in our church. And uh, like everything else, what Adam's talked about, we need to find people who are, have, get a bit of a track record at discerning things and, uh, and, and, and make use of them. And maybe they're going to have to share it with leaders to start off with. They can't just go around heresy hunting and popping off at people in the ranks. But frankly, we do need it. I, I, I just encourage you to be sensitive to the fact, because sometimes I think, I think if just a couple of people feel it, you, you get strength. You, you both, we all feel uneasy about that. Let's now pursue this. And I think God does give this gift. It's in the Bible, discerning of spirits, and we need to develop it. Sorry, someone was asking a question. Amber. I'm going on a bit. We're going to have to finish yeah, soon. Just... Probably maybe along those lines that you've been talking, I've just been feeling that um, we live in a society where people are increasingly seeking out spiritual experiences. And some of them are definitely having spiritual experiences. And they would say they're extremely um, wonderful experiences, powerful experiences. And some of the things they report, because I've come come up in front of this recently, are so similar to the Holy Spirit and the way the Holy Spirit works. Yeah. And I've, I would like some advice. How do I talk to people who've had these experiences and say, I'm having a wonderful time, you know, I feel high as a kite, I'm laughing, I'm crying, um, I feel this heat coming on me. And I know full well that they're not born-again Christians. Mm. Um, how do you sort of approach that? Because this is happening and people are having these experiences, but it's not... It's clearly not the Holy Spirit. No. I mean, I, I mean, it's undoubtedly true that all sorts of people can have those sort of experiences from all sorts of sources. Drugs as well, but they, these are spiritual. I think the key thing is somehow you've got to get to, is Jesus Lord of this? Is Jesus being honoured? Because um, they had this problem in the New Testament. They've got to discern spirits. They've got to weigh up what's... You know, test the spirits. I think it's John, isn't it? One John. You know, is Jesus being honoured? Is Jesus Lord? If he isn't honoured, you have every reason to doubt the origin of what's happening. If Jesus isn't Lord out of this, if Jesus isn't proclaimed as Lord, somehow lifted up, if Jesus isn't the centre of it, then you've got every right to question its origin. 
It could be just human. It could be spirit, evil spirit or what, something else. I, I mean, that seems to be the weight of the New Testament. It's got to be Jesus-centred to be any value in the end. But <laughs> I don't know how. I would, I would say I'd talk to them about it. I mean, I think... You're right, there's all sorts of experiences out there and they think it's great because they're getting better. I mean, the only thing I'd say is to say to people, uh, if it is, I think you talk about the spiritual world. That, I mean, I think you can approach this quite um, gently at first. You know, the, the, there is stuff out there, it does happen. But if it's not God, it's going to ultimately lead to some form of bondage, even if it starts well starts with healing. It's going to lead to some sort of damage. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, as even in the Bible, aren't there, that, that girl at Philippi who was accurately foretelling the future, accurately, but she was clearly in terrible bondage and was actually earning a fortune for, her, for these guys. I mean, but actually she was hit, obviously hitting the nail on the head or she wouldn't have earned the fortune. So it looks like, well, that's great, but it actually it's horrible its ultimate effect in the person's life. And the answer for Paul was to deliver her completely so she couldn't tell the future at all. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. New agent would say, isn't it? That's a shame. She lost all that. Well, yeah, because it was all bringing her into destruction and bondage. So what's the fruit? I mean, somehow to talk about that sort of thing, really. I mean, you can't really avoid getting round, I think, to issues about God and sin and destruction and the, the, the wages of sin is death, really. But it's not comfortable stuff. I mean, you have to start wherever you can and work in towards it, I would say. But you do, you, you do get it. I mean, I remember, um, sometimes people get very open on these things. I can remember when I was a school teacher, still, in, in teaching in school, I had some very, um, very humanistic colleagues. One fellow English teacher was very humanistic, very dismissive of... of uh, of, of faith things, of Christian things. And one Monday he came to me quite sober and a bit, bit I thought, what's wrong with him? And uh, uh, Peter there, and he, and he said, I can have a word with you, can I have a word with you? And what he wanted to say, over the weekend, he and his wife, and he was older than me, he was just, you know, so it was an older, slightly older man, he and his wife had gone to a dinner party. And at this dinner party there'd been a seance and what had happened in the seance had really freaked him. I mean, he, he'd asked questions that he thought nobody knew the answer to, and he got the answer. He had language spoken. He was an English uh, teacher, English lit guy, and, he, and, and, the, and the, the spirit said he was the spirit of a, a 17th century soldier. Was it from the Civil War? I can't remember. And he said he spoke in the language of the Civil War, and he was very concerned about this. What do you make of all this? He was sort of impressed. And I said, I spoke about spiritual things. I said, this is the world you've denied. But there's God and there's demonic. And then we had a whole long conversation about it. To this day, I don't know if he ever became a Christian. But sometimes those things do give you an opportunity to really talk very detailed about stuff like that. He would never have listened to a conversation unless that had happened. And that's not quite the same, but I'm just, it's all I can rake into my, uh, my experience to, to talk. Yeah. Um, whoa, another question. Cliff. And then we will stop soon, but it's good to have questions. John, yeah. just hopefully to, to clarify one point. Yeah. This was something that Greg taught us yonks ago, and that is the, the basic difference between speaking in tongues and prophecy. Mm -hmm. 
And the scripture says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Yep. That's 14, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. Yep. And Greg taught us quite simply that speaking in tongues is a prayer language from us to God. Yeah. And therefore, the interpretation will always be a message of praise to God. Yeah. And that, that then it goes on to say, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Um, and we are also taught to test prophecy. Um, sometimes, as the gentleman over there says, the, the devil can get in and confuse us. And so, for that reason, we, we are told in the scripture to test prophecy. But when we hear a tongue in the church and then hear an interpretation, that interpretation will always be prayer and praise from man to God and that, to me, was a clear distinction. Just a moment of humor. Greg taught us to value spiritual gifts, and he taught us to practice spiritual gifts, and he said we'll make mistakes when we do it, and they're to be forgiven, um, because we don't always get it right. And so somebody got up in the service and spoke in tongues, and a guy got up and interpreted and said... I, God, say unto you, and Greg says, wrong, sit down. Um, and that person was damaged, unfortunately. But um, um, it was a shame it was treated in that way, but it, it was very humorous at the time. Yeah, it was uh, for you. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't me, thank goodness. The other bloke maybe. Yeah. Thank you, John. <laughs> no, thank you, Cliff. But, I mean, ideally, uh, we would try not to correct it that way, but uh, there is... A fact there, which I've already said, which is true, uh, that scripture clearly indicates that tongues are, are Godward. And uh, I think they're mostly, not, not exclusively, but mostly for use on your own private, private uh, use. I'm not going to be able to finish this list off because we've run out of time. But just if you glance down, you'll see the possibilities. Apostle, evangelist, pastor. I'm on page three now, by the way. I've gone back. I'm not going to go through it all. Words of knowledge. Words of wisdom. Please read these through yourself. Healings, which are clearly something we want to see more and more of. Miracles, where, where we see real outstanding things happen. I think, to be fair, even in the Bible, miracles, which I think are where the laws of nature are suspended in a different way to healings, where prison doors open, or people like Philip disappear in one place and appear in another, or massive sort of amounts of food appear when there's only a small amount, like we were talking about this morning. I think even in the New Testament, they were exceptional. That isn't to downplay them, but they, they indicate that, you know, when shadow of Peter fell and handkerchiefs from Paul. There are times of miracles, and we want more of them, but there are those exceptional things. But some will see that more than others. Discerning of spirits, we, we, we talked about administration, which is helping the body of Christ to get to somewhere that it wants to reach, goal and helps, which is, I think, just worth mentioning, funnily enough, as the last one there on page four. A special ability God gives to some members of the body of Christ to invest their natural talents, their life ministry, into other members, the ministry of other members of the body of Christ, helping to make somebody else very effective in their gifting. 
It's a bit of a, a helping other person gift. I really believe it is, where perhaps Barnabas had it a bit in encouraging and promoting Paul, where you really help someone else in their gifting and, in a sense, promote them by your own gifting. There's lots and lots of possibilities, and really we haven't got time to explore them all. But the final section, which goes on uh, page... I'm not going to have time to do that either, but page six is that I believe every one of us has a gift mix from God. They're grace gifts, so they're not about our own pride or ability. There's great variety. The Bible says not only is there great variety of gifts, there are various kinds of service, different spheres in which gifts are performed, different types of uh, prophecy, for example, or evangelism. And there are different levels or degrees of power in working in gifts. There's great variety. And the gifts are not primarily for the user's benefit. They're for the benefit of the church and other people. And one of the great motivators to developing your gift is a desire to serve and help other people and to bless the church. Desire to to want to see things happen in, in your church and in the lives of people around you. And then how to discover your gift looks... Uh, pretty simple and it is really you just need to be spirit filled Christian you need to be willing to work because they're gifts to serve the church you need to pray, you need to actually explore the possibilities, that is to see what God gives you to do step out on a limb, try it actually, experiment a bit be prepared to have others talk into you, evaluate your effectiveness, examine your feelings do you enjoy doing it, what do others think, do they feel that you do well in that after all the body of Christ is the, is the main beneficiary of your gift and so expect people to encourage you and guide you. You can't sort it all out yourself on your own. You do need others' encouragement. That should have been half an hour's talk, but I, I haven't time to do that. So, you know, we've, we've looked at some aspects of it this evening. There's probably lots more to say. Let's just stand together as we finish and I'll uh, just need to, myself, just to get a sense from God about how we close so let's just uh, I don't want to keep you much beyond this time I think probably what I feel is there might be one or two who want us to pray for them as the meeting closes maybe you have struggled with something perhaps the gift of tongues perhaps some other gift or maybe you had a gift which you moved in quite powerfully once upon a time and you now never use it you've perhaps had your fingers burnt, maybe you've neglected it through your own perhaps choice or busyness or perhaps even a little bit of backsliding, but you know you've neglected it. And we want to pray that God will rekindle that gift in you and stir it up in you. So it may be that you're struggling with something like tongues. It may be that you've neglected something or feel that something you once moved quite significantly in. You never do it now. And we just pray for God to freshly kindle that in you. And I I hope Steve wouldn't mind me saying, Steve and I and maybe one or two others, Neil, others, would, would just gladly pray with you if you want to stay behind for a few minutes. But I think in, now as I pray, we're going to have to release the rest of you because uh, it's only appropriate with the time. So just to let you know, we will pray with you if you want us to. Now let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these wonderful gifts you've given us. I thank you, Lord, that we have got the possibility of speaking mysteries to you in the Spirit. I thank you, Lord, we've got prophetic words from you right direct to us. 
Thank you, Lord. We can expect to see people healed, delivered from demons. We can have you communicating to us words of knowledge, discernment of spirits. Lord, it's such an exciting world to enter. The world of, a, of the New Testament Christian. The spirit-filled Christian. The believer walking in the path of Jesus knowing that the gifts that he's given are available for us to help us to serve you and extend your kingdom. Lord, this is exciting. Please help us to grow in our gifting. Please multiply gifting amongst us. Lord, please, will we see more and more of the gifts of the Spirit operating in this church? I ask that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.